You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, Hawaii Talks. This is Catherine Cruz. You know, the election is still on people's minds, and today we talked to State Senator Kaika Hele. He's only the second Native Hawaiian to serve in D.C. He easily won the second congressional race to replace Tulsi Gabbard, who stepped down to run an unsuccessful bid for president. For Kahele, a Hawaiian Airlines pilot and Air Guard uh, lieutenant colonel, this win has him headed to Washington, D.C. in one of the most challenging times in our nation's history. He spent time this morning reflecting back when his late father, Senator Gil Kahele, made one last request of him. I never would have been here if it wasn't for a couple of things. One, the way and the unfortunate, sudden, unexpected circumstances uh, in the way my dad passed away and how he pulled me aside, you know, and my wife uh, late on a Saturday night at Queens Hospital and asked me if I would consider replacing him in the state Senate. And this was after he had had, you know, three heart attacks in about five days. And, you know, we weren't just sure if he was going to survive another one. And so, you know, he made that he, he made that ask. And, and, you know, I recognized that it might be the last time my dad ever asked anything of me. And so, you know, I, as a son, you know, I didn't hesitate, man. I didn't know what that meant. Uh, you know, we were having a conversation just like you and I are having right now. So I never expected that two days later he would pass away. And two weeks later, you know, and I've always said, you know, Governor Ike, you know, I got to mahalo him for giving me the opportunity to replace my dad in the state Senate. You know, he didn't have to do that, you know, but he did. And he allowed our family to heal a little bit knowing that I would be able to continue my dad's legacy in the state Senate, provided a little bit of closure for my mom, who's been really struggling with it for the last five years. But, you know, I never imagined less than five years ago when I would be appointed to the state Senate to represent Hilo at 41 years old, that here we would be on the cusp of becoming only the second Native Hawaiian to go to Congress, Senator Akaka, uh, one of the first neighbor island members of Congress to join the delegation. And I'm just super stoked. You know, 46 years old. I didn't think this is something I would be doing at this stage of my life, but that's how life is sometimes. And it's an incredible opportunity. And I'm very excited for it. And I'm very excited for Hawaii. And I know you had that dream to be a pilot. And I remember thinking, oh gosh, when you were first appointed, what does that mean? Will he be able to fly? And of course, you've been able to do that. But now that you're taking on this job in D.C., how does that all work with the guard and and with your uh, commercial? Well, I mean, Hawaiian Airlines has always been supportive. You know, my wife has been there for 20 years. I've been there for 11 years. You know, we're a Hawaiian Airlines Ohana, and we've been through thick and thin with them. And so they've been very supportive of this new opportunity for me. I'm currently on a long-term leave of absence, partly because of COVID-19, you know, which allowed some other family and another pilot to keep their job at Hawaiian Airlines. You know, I've, I've been in Hawaii for 11 years, so I have a decent amount of seniority, so I wasn't affected by the furloughs. But there are, you know, just under 80 pilots at Hawaiian Airlines that, that were furloughed and are currently out of a job. So, you know, that keeps somebody else working, keeps somebody else's family with health care and with their privileges and benefits. And anyway, as far as the Guard goes, this is not the first time we've sent a member to Congress from the military. Of course, late Mark Takai and Tulsi Gabbard. Both served in the National Guard, and there is a unit up there that you can drill at, as I understand, while you're in D.C. And But at the same time, you know, COVID has also allowed us to telework and to, to drill remotely, and which I've been doing for the last two to three months. I've been remotely drilling with my unit, even though it's on Oahu at Hickam Air Force Base. I've been drilling uh, one weekend a month out of my home here in Hilo. So I think it is definitely possible. I mean, I intend to stay in the Hawaii National Guard as long as I can. I have 20 years of commission service right now, and I can at least stay until 28 years, which would be a mandatory separation date, regardless of you know who it is. 28 years is the longest you can stay in with, unless you have a waiver. So I have at least another eight years in the Guard, and, and I intend to continue serving the state of Hawaii in that capacity. When you're in the pilot seat in a plane, I mean, I don't know, what has that experience taught you as you go into this new position? The responsibility that you have when you are in command of a, an aircraft that has 300 people sitting in the back of you, families, children, you know, grandparents, our kupuna, our airline, our crew, and you need to operate that aircraft safely. You need to get people to their destinations in a safe manner. It's a great level of responsibility, you know, one that I do not take lightly. And, you know, I learned that 
and I experienced that at a young age, at 19 years old. You know, as a young commercial pilot, flying tours around Hawaii Island and flying people around Hawaii Island, you know, as a, as a young pilot. And so, you know, it, it's the same level of responsibility I feel now, you know, when I represent three-quarters of a million people of the state of Hawaii and across the entire Hawaii Island chain. And, you know, I'm just super appreciative of it. You know, people put their, their trust and their faith in our airline pilots, not just at Hawaiian Airlines, but across the entire country. You know, we have the safest aviation infrastructure and training and, and programs across in the entire world. And so it's great. And I really appreciate, uh, you know, all the support everybody has given me. You know, I'm a big fan of wide-angle views, and, you know, you have a bird's-eye view of of the world, really. I was struck when uh, the Big Island was going through the lava inundation, and you gave a, a perspective that most lawmakers, you know, didn't have firsthand because that was, you know, part of your other job uh, was being yeah, up in the air. Yeah, you know, I mean, I remember the airspace was closed. You know, commercial flights couldn't fly over uh the lava zone, and I was able to put on my uniform and join my Hawaii Army National Guard brothers and sisters and jumped in the helicopter, and I knew, you know, how important it was for people to be able to see what was happening, especially those that have, have homes and have their farms and everything in Lower Puna. And so, uh, you know, I pulled out my camera and just started taking photos, and, and I was the only one <laughs> taking photos in the entire world, and, you know, I'll never forget, I, I was still fine at Hawaiian then, and I took a trip to Beijing, and I was shortly after I had taken those photos and posted them, and I was on my layover in Beijing in China, and I was in my hotel room watching CNN, and the photos that I took popped up on CNN in China, and there was my name credited to the photos, and that was, <laughs> that was pretty cool, but wow. you know, I, I just, uh, so many people got to be able to see what was happening real time and we got an opportunity to to help our community that's why that's why we're there you know our, our national guardsmen just like they're doing right now responding to the COVID-19 relief we are there when our communities need us the most and the 2018 lava eruptions were no different and you talked about you know the need to respond to this COVID crisis that's one of your priorities as you head to Congress you'll have a, an ally with Case Ed Case yeah, absolutely. I mean, Congressman Case has been extremely gracious. You know, before he's even a colleague, you know, he's a personal friend. He was a personal friend of my dad's for a long, long time. Our families are uh, deeply connected to a special place here in South Kona, uh, close to where my ancestral home is, where my dad was born in Middle East, a small little fishing village uh, in South Kona. And so, you know, we, we share a lot of uh, connections beyond... Um, you know, the opportunity to serve as colleagues. But with that being said, he's just been fantastic over the last uh, several months since I was able to secure the primary um, nomination in helping prepare me for what's happening right now. And things are moving just uh, as I had expected. It's moving quick. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to working with him. I've, I've said it several times now. I think Congressman Case and uh, Kai Kahele are going to be a dynamic team in the U.S. House of Representatives for the state of Hawaii, and I'm looking forward to working with him. That was Congressman-elect Kai Kahele talking to us this morning from Hilo. He's looking to hire staff ASAP. Kahele says there are some 18 positions, including four part-time slots between the offices in D.C. and here in the islands. Check his website, kaikahele.com, to find out more. And now it's time to turn to the BBC to give us views from abroad on the U.S. presidential election, which is still up in the air. From the BBC in London, I'm Robert Hugh-Jones with Global View on 2020 and how the world saw the unfolding U.S. election this week. Coming up, European media worried about the future of democracy in America and China's state media was fascinated by Americans showing an interest in moving to Canada. But first, like so many other countries, Russia was transfixed by the vote. NTV, a channel controlled by Russia's state-run energy giant Gazprom, talked of, quote, a record-breaking turnout, dirty campaigning and expectations of unrest. Vitaly Shevchenko monitors Russian media for the BBC. They seemed more interested, he said, in the disorder around the vote than the outcome. 
The Kremlin media machine's main message to the people of Russia is that America is in chaos, that its democracy is failing, that its voting system is deeply flawed, and most importantly, that it is in no position to teach others what is right and what is wrong. Another colleague, Krasi Twig, was watching some of the other global media reaction. Because the US election is such a global event with such um, far-reaching consequences for many countries around the world, that created anxiety for them. And some of the, I'll give you some of the top lines that emerged the next day. Uh, the United States of Anxiety, that was a headline in a newspaper in India. The Phantom of 2016 is knocking at the door. That was a comment uh, from Brazil. The game of nerves is dragging on. And I think there was, the, there was the expectation that there would be a clearer result and everybody can move on. Uh, so big themes that uh, emerged in the last couple of days uh, is the possible threat of violence and the deep divisions uh, that are likely to remain in American society regardless of the outcome. Uh, and... Uh, we have seen throughout this whole campaign that media around the world have been reporting the U.S. election through the prism of their own interests, and that has been the case for months, but particularly in the last two days with the threat of violence. Uh, in some countries, this became part of um, the narrative to portray the U.S. in chaos. And if you looked at um, Iran's um, international-facing uh, press TV, which is an English-language television channel, they were talking about the threat of civil war. Uh, th these were the words they were using. They were saying, you know, to an, ex to an outside observer, things are looking very scary in America right now. Um, one of the big highlights in Latin American media was Trump's victory in Florida. And that was seen as a result of the boost by Venezuelan and Cuban votes. And that was also seen as an indication that Trump portraying Biden as a socialist has clearly worked. Crassy Twig there from BBC Monitoring. Meanwhile, media in Europe have been fretting about the state of America. Germany's Bill Tabloid said there is already, especially in Germany, a terrible perception that dictatorships like China and Russia are the same kind of partners as the USA. This perception could now accelerate even more, and that, it says, is dangerous. While the Spanish news agency EFE called November 3rd the day America stopped believing in itself. And in China, CCTV Morning News pointed out that Google searches of how to move to Canada saw a 700% increase in the U.S. The host claimed Americans were experiencing nervousness and fear. China's state media often cover search trends on Google. That's despite the fact the site is officially banned in China. Well, that's what some of the world's media have been saying about the US election as it unfolded this week. In London, I'm Rob Hugh-Jones at the BBC. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Haleakala Ranch with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Andrew Forstoffel, author of Walking to Listen, and next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about my 4,000-mile walk across America. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Bavarian Motor Experts. This morning, travelers from Japan were cleared to begin arriving in the islands under a new agreement that's meant to help bolster Hawaii's economy and to test the demand from the east. It's been three weeks since the state started its pretest travel program with the West. We talked to Lieutenant Governor Josh Green this morning about where things stand. I'm excited about it because this is definitely a partner that is very professional and follows rules nicely with us. 
so we're expecting it to be more seamless. And of course, our testing partners are working hard on on you know in partnership with Japan to get it all straight. So it should be pretty good. We also know that the rate of individuals that have COVID in Japan is low. It's one thirteenth of what it is in California. So having travelers from Japan in large numbers would be good for us because very low COVID risk and very significant economic benefit. And we know with the Japan market, a lot has to do with uh, the confidence in traveling. I mean, we have low numbers compared to the rest of the country. So hopefully that, you know, we can build uh, on, you know, some of this confidence going forward because it, it, it can only help our economy at this point. Well, for us, Japan is the perfect partner to be returning. And it will build confidence. It, it does also open the door for other international partners. We know that uh, South Korea, New Zealand, Australia, and Canada are all very interested. But there is the surge going on in the mainland with COVID, and that is a concern. It's why we set up the Safe Travels program, of course, to, to have that additional layer of safety. Uh, we don't need as much security from Japan. But as people start seeing a seamless process for international travelers, they know, they'll know it can be done. And we always treat our guests with great respect from Japan. So that mutually uh, respectful relationship is already kind of being felt. I think that we'll probably some see somewhat low numbers at first from Japan because they still, upon their return to Japan, will need to do a test and quarantine for 14 days. And not everyone can do that. So until Japan feels comfortable that their travelers are not mingling with, say, people from the mainland who could be, you know, asymptomatic positive for COVID. I think they're going to probably keep their guard up a little bit, but it's going to keep getting better. And we know that the Honolulu Marathon, you know, uh, Dr. Jim Barrowhall, you know, had some high hopes that he could still hold, uh, you know, that premier athletic event, but that's not to be this year. And I think just out of concern for all the, you know, all the red tape leading up to the decision today to allow, you know, this bubble. Yeah, I was kind of hoping it could occur too, but it, it was a little bit too soon. And I think what will happen is, number one, we'll establish great confidence that travel from Japan to Hawaii is extremely safe with utterly low risk. Uh, the, the number of cases there are so much lower than everywhere else in the mainland and in Hawaii that it, it only improves our condition, honestly. And then on top of that, we will develop some protocols for large events. I've begun to think about that with my team. I think that there's a place for both the pre-test and then a post-test before large events. Not that unlike what they're doing for the UH football team and teams from uh, the rest of the mainland that come over here. I think that's also a safe way to do things. So it takes a lot of logistical planning. But so let's, you know, let's walk before we run, literally in this case, and have travel before we do the marathon. And I know a number of hoteliers, you know, are preparing to welcome visitors back. We talked to the GM over at Mount Alani, and I know, you know, I think they had signed up with one of the trusted partners to do a spit test for their guests. I know folks are, are trying to work through some of the bugs and, and hoping that we can still, I guess, reduce the risk of any positive cases coming in and, and reduce the risk just from community spread that we've got going right now. Absolutely. Streamlined testing is critical. We set the standard, and it was even reported in the New York Times today, that Hawaii is kind of setting the standard for travel with the pretest. But there still are additional considerations. And to be able to do a post-test, say, three to four days after people have arrived, very efficiently. It needs to be pretty affordable because you're starting to talk about testing a lot of people. That's the key. And you also want the results to come back in, you know, either rapidly in a few minutes or at least that day to get the benefit from it. All that's in play. And to have a saliva test or a spit test is the way to go. Uh, there are a lot of different rapid testing protocols that are being put out there. There's a kind of a breathalyzer test that's coming out of Israel that people have talked about. But any of these tests that we can quickly implement and use it as an additional safety uh, measure are great. I expect that we'll want to use those kind of tests for not just resorts, but for events, for a classroom that needs a quick check because one of the, the keiki were positive or a teacher was feeling under the weather or a fire station. Uh, travelers will come back and they want some extra checks. We're doing that with surveillance testing, but it, it would have to be widespread uh, to, to achieve that goal. So. So many different things will happen. We're in a very dynamic time with a pandemic combined with all of, uh, all of the desire that people have to survive and, and economically thrive going forward. So that's where I think testing will be used. And I appreciate the mayors uh, deciding to do more testing. 
uh, we were ahead of that game with the pretest program, and so everyone else is catching up. And you know, we have that new mobile testing unit there that they just opened. You know, so that, that at least our capacity is 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 getting stronger. The capacity question in that particular case was, uh, they're going to send those tests to the mainland, so mm-hmm. it will it'll be a little slower, but it won't take away from our reagents. It won't take away from our swabs, and that's important because. We have to be able to continue to deliver top-notch health care, I'll be on call this weekend, for example, to our patients and to travelers that have come here who might get sick. should be a small number, like I said, but we still do have some finite capacity. And so that's what that partnership is about. Uh, I will say that they are good people. That's uh, the Hawaii Kidney Foundation that's really behind that. And I was speaking to them for a couple months and encouraging them to reach out to city and, and other people because... The more testing we can do, especially through the spring, the better. I'm going to continue to fight back cases day by day by day and make sure our hospitals have enough capacity. But we want to be ready so that once we get a vaccination in place and once we start seeing the real end of the, um, the, the end of this runway, that we haven't suffered too much through the winter. I know capacity is a real concern for uh, a lot of the neighbor island hospitals where they don't have as many beds as Oahu and as much equipment. Uh, yeah. You know, Maui, it, it's a concern because, you know, that island is very popular, so they're bound to see a lot more tourists. And, you know, there's also the uh, Canadian snowbirds, right? It, we're getting into that time where, you know, we might see that part of the visitor industry also start to rebound. Absolutely. So uh, with regards to capacity, we have 24 ICU beds on all of Big Island, 29 on Maui, only only uh, nine on Kauai, none on Lanai. And so those pale in comparison to the numbers that we have on Oahu. As of today, we have 63 individuals in the hospital with COVID. Uh, it's closer to 15 to 18 in the intensive care unit with covid but we reached a peak of 318 at the end of August. So we know what our range is, and it would be very difficult on the neighbor islands if they had a big surge. So we're mindful of that. Yes, the snowbirds will come. We, of course, will have a streamlined pretest program for them. We're working out those details with Canada right now, and it should be very safe. But you can't be too safe. And also, we're mindful that the surge could continue on the mainland, and that could affect how much extra testing we want to do. If it's really bad on the mainland, Believe me, we're going to do extra testing uh, after arrival. The challenge is how do you operationalize that, uh, and I think that a lot of the devil is in the details. So the more people that are testing, the more availability we have, the better right now. Uh, we've done well these last several months, but uh, as Dr. Fauci reported to us when we, when we talked, there's no way to stop some COVID from coming through the cracks. It's just impossible. So we have to be on our game with contact tracers. Uh, we have 387 contact tracers now as of November 1st. That's up from like 16, six months ago, so a huge increase. We can now test between four and 5,000 people a day, and that's before you add this other uh, testing that they'll mail out over to, I think it's L.A. And we now are screening people, which is the, that's kind of the game changer, honestly, to be able to screen people when we didn't screen anybody until October 15th. Everyone came in without a test before then, hope people realize that now we're screening like I think it's 87 percent of people or something like that 85 87 percent are getting a successful screen before they come in and the other percentage of people are are going willingly to to quarantine because they're more elderly or they just made that choice I mean these are big changes for the positive so I hope that we can keep this up I know that I know that we will keep these policies in place uh, because I don't see the end of the COVID crisis happening until we have a really good uh, kind of international immunity profile. Do you think uh, Canada will be the next country that we will establish a relationship with on this travel program? I I think Canada is is probably next. Uh, There have been conversations, as I mentioned, with um, Korea and New Zealand, but New Zealand is kind of keeping it closed still, and Canada is very eager to have a relationship with us. I'm going to have a conversation uh, with Israel. They're eager to travel here also uh, and are very, you know, they're super efficient in their testing. So these conversations will go, you know, will go forward. We talked with an international partner that does some, some software that could kind of make a common platform if we needed it for our international partners. They work with the airlines. So lots of work going on to make it, I guess, ironclad. But we'll still double-check with surveillance. We'll still double-check with extra testing. And we won't take any risks with people's health. 
if there's a surge, I can tell you it's going to be because we're back at work and we're having a lot more time together with one another. Almost all of our transmission has been community transmission. On that note, on that note, we saw the long lines at Honolulu Hale. I know there was some yes. concern also with Halloween. Any other thoughts on that and potential spread? Yeah, I think that we will have a 20% bump at least, maybe 30% for two weeks because of Halloween and uh, because of um, the long lines at Honolulu Hale and, and over in Kapolei. However, it won't be like it was, I don't think, with Fourth of July, where we had massive gatherings all over the state. And that was before we had kind of um, smartened up together as a community and and all were wearing masks. At least there was a good mask wearing uh, in the election line yes. I saw. And yeah. that's, a, that's a testament to people's uh, fortitude because that was a kind of a tough election night. So I'm glad to see that, but there will be some extra cases. And that's, you know, that's what we're dealing with, we're dealing week over week to get to the vaccination, and then we'll start feeling good. That was Lieutenant Governor Josh Green talking about the latest with the Safe Travels program and today's launch with Japan. He stresses that mask wearing is crucial to curbing the spread of the virus. And while he believes the rate has to be at least 90 percent compliance, he says the latest numbers as of October 31st show that it is hovering in the 70 to 80 percent range across the state. Civil Beach Reality Check today features education reporter Suvon Lee. She has a story providing a snapshot of learning in our public schools. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So I guess the question is, is it safe to come back, right? <laughs> yes, that is the title of the article. <laughs> um, and it's a it's a very complex question um, as as my interviews have um, have I've, I've learned through them. So it, it really does depend. I think the the I think what it comes down to is really what is the rate of community transmission in that particular area surrounding the school? And I think because our data isn't that granular right now, it's a really hard question to answer. But as um, the story does lay out, uh, according to some anecdotes, it is possible to bring kids back safely in certain settings if there's a multi-layered prevention strategy, um, is what experts are saying. Yeah, it's been almost three months since we started the school year, right? And uh, I know that the decision has uh, been placed kind of in the complex area, right, as to what folks are doing? Well, right now, um, there is a, so right now in DOE schools, we are in the second quarter, and schools have been back for almost three months. Um, of course, the first quarter was just an all-around distance learning um order from the DOE. And as we are in the second quarter, I think a lot of schools, now schools have the option to choose whether or not to bring students back for blended learning. And that is oftentimes a decision that is being made at the complex area level. But some other schools are individually choosing to bring kids back this month. So for instance, um, uh, Kalani High School, for instance, is bringing back its seniors starting November 23rd, twice a week um, in alternating groups. And some other elementary schools are bringing kids back on a alternating basis as well. And of course, um, Hawaii's private schools have been bringing back kids for quite some time now. And according to some of the interviews I had with private school leaders, they're saying that it's going um, well and that there haven't been many cases at all that have been identified on campus. And they speak a lot to the fact that families are adhering to the rules, that they're being very cautious about sending their kid to school if there's any signs of symptoms. So I think it's really that sort of um, just all-around collaborative effort that's contributing, I guess, to the rate of success in that arena. Yeah, I was talking to Phil Bossert with the Hawaii Association of Independent Schools yesterday, and he was saying that, yeah, a lot of the younger grades are in class. The bigger schools, I think, are doing the blended learning um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's just interesting to see, you know, what's going on, you know, across the state. Yeah, I think that's a really big, important consideration, too, as far as separating out 
kids in terms of grade levels. As we know, younger kids are bringing are are coming back more frequently, and I think that's just because there's um, uh, an ability to be able to separate them out into smaller cohorts, or they're um, able to sort of partition them out a little bit more. Whereas older kids might have a little bit more success with distance learning, just because they have um, they're just older and they they're just more compatible with some of the tech technology uh, requirements there. So, um, but yeah, I think it does vary depending on where where you're talking about, what school you're talking about. Yeah, because I think they wanted to work uh, together, you know, as far as like complex schools, right? Because uh, if you've got kids that are in the old, older grade and younger grade, it, oh, it just gets all complicated <laughs> when you've got, uh, you know, families uh, dealing with, you know, multi-age children. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and that is a challenge if you have several kids at home as a parent, I would imagine, um, just sort of juggling the various needs that, you know, the um, the kids' uh, assignments require. So um, it certainly is, um, yeah, a juggling act. And so uh, how are the schools doing as far as uh, personal protective gear and all that? Well, the, the DOE is supplying PPE to schools. There is a... Um, a, a current three-month supply that la- will last at least through early next year, as I understand it. Um, Three million dollars through CARES funding provided through Hayima that is giving things like masks and face shields and hand sanitizer and you know those basic PPE to schools right now. And some schools though are kind of going above and beyond that to sort of fundraise for additional protective equipment such as desk shields. Um, And I know that that's just more kind of for their own level of comfort and peace of mind, but, you know, not all schools are doing the same thing. I think it really does depend on um, how, how, um, how much these schools want to go and as far as getting more equipment. Yeah, just got to go slow and and see what's going on in your community. Thanks so much, Suvan. Sure, thanks for having me on. All right, so that was reporter Suvan Lee with today's Reality Check. To read her full story, uh, head to civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting Katsuhika Hokusai's Great Wave off Kanagawa, also known as the Great Wave, on view November 12th through the 29th. HonoluluMuseum.org. Imagine a group of engaged peers who get together to connect with each other, to celebrate and support our community, and to have a good time. You've just envisioned Generation Listen, an HPR project that connects younger listeners with the station and each other. It's a group that's welcoming, diverse, and lively, and we want you to be a part of it. We're always looking for new members and for volunteers interested in joining our leadership team. Follow us on social at HPR Gen Listen. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Shamanad University and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. The need to find care for Hawaii's growing senior population continues, even during this time of COVID. Social worker Nicole Coglietta helped found a free service to help assist families navigate the confusing world of elder care. She spoke with producer Lillian Song about how her own frustrations led her to turn her passion project into a free service called CareSift, which started in 2015. I was a caregiver at a very young age. And that led me to pursue a master's degree in social work. And I worked in our emergency departments for several years. And I noticed that families struggled when needing to research long-term care options. And it wasn't until we medevaced my grandfather in from a neighbor island that I realized how difficult the process was. Even for a medical social worker, uh, I drove around in the middle of the night. Uh, cold calling and going from care home to care home to find care. You know, we had a 24-hour time period to make decisions, and it was such a difficult process. And so that's why our family really struggled. And there are a lot of resources out there. But at the time, you know, I really had to just cold call everyone and start from scratch. So after I experienced that with my grandfather, 
I actually went door to door on my time off from the hospital, uh, just personally interviewing care providers and collecting their information uh, and, and putting that up on a website. It was really just a passion project of mine six years ago. Uh, that is really why we started CareSift, to help prevent families from going through what we experienced. We were just trying to provide additional support to them so that they can make informed decisions on care options for their loved ones. So speaking to that person listening right now who perhaps is starting to notice that I'm not so comfortable leaving mom at home by herself, maybe it's time for me to start looking into what is long-term care. Long-term care uh, is everything, all the different resources that can support a senior. And so it really ranges from adult daycare services to private hire in-home caregivers, licensed care homes. Uh, in Hawaii, we have what we call community care foster family homes. And this also includes independent living, assisted living, memory care, retirement communities, skilled nursing facilities. There are a ton of options available uh, for long-term care in Hawaii. Different families have different needs. What are the key things to be mindful of when looking for care? There are many things that families need to be mindful of. And I would say the most important thing is what's important to your loved one's quality of life. You know, what, what brings them joy and happiness? Because whatever that is, if it's keeping their family pet or if it's being around children or if it's, you know, being with, uh, you know, other, other people where they can socialize and have activity, whatever is important to their quality of life, that's what we look for uh, when researching care options. For most families that are not in crisis, it usually takes us about two weeks to thoroughly research all the different options that are available and educate families on the process. Uh, our advocates do more than just find care for seniors. We work with seniors and their families before, during, and after our seniors transition to care. Uh, so it's really a journey that we go on with them. Uh, but we can get care set up as quickly as, you know, just a few hours. If, we're, if it's an emergency situation, it could take us just three or four hours to get everything set up. So with CareSift, how does one start the process? You know, the first thing that we ask our families to do is simply give us a call and speak to one of our uh, senior care advocates, and we will talk with each individual family and find out what type of benefits they have, what kind of support system they already have in place, uh, what kind of supplemental support do they need, and we'll educate them about all the different resources that meet their level of care needs and are within their budget. So they're not overwhelmed with everything from A to Z, maybe just the resources, you know, we can focus on uh, resources that will fit. And Nicole, how is it that you're able to offer this service for free? We are paid for the service that we provide, but we are paid and supported by the various long-term care providers. And that's why it's a free service for seniors and their families. They may not think that they can afford care, uh, we can help them find very affordable care options. And sometimes it's just a matter of them, you know, being educated about what their resources are so that they understand that they can actually afford the care that's available. Uh, so even if you're on a limited income, uh, you know, you might be able to get, you know, just a few chore services in a few times a week or a bathing service or adult daycare, you know, we can help families set up a care plan that's affordable and within their budget. We don't want seniors to go without care. And we do also offer support in helping adult caregivers, caring for family and loved ones. Uh, we do help them from time to time set up respite care. And we do try to help support them emotionally. And so, you know, it's, it's, this can be very stressful for everyone involved, for the entire family. So we, we try to take a very personalized approach in uh, working with families to make sure that everyone's uh, needs are accounted for. So your clients really benefit from your wealth of experience and your understanding of what they're going through. We try to help support them 
with all the knowledge that we've gained and all the feedback that we've received from the community. I really feel that, you know, we were created by the community for the community. Uh, and everything we do is uh, based on our purpose. We're a purpose-driven organization. And our purpose is to improve the quality of life for our seniors and ease the burden of family and professionals. So you said this was created by community for community. How large is your footprint? Well, we are statewide now. <laughs> so anyone on any of the islands that needs care uh, in Hawaii, we would be able to help support them and educate them on various resources. Just start with a basic phone call to us, and we would try to understand what your needs are, what you're looking for, what your budget is, and that way we can help you explore appropriate options. Even if you maybe don't need care now, but you want to research for the future to make sure that when the time comes you can afford the cost of care, we also welcome families you know, to call us for informational conversations. You can visit www.caresif.com. Uh, we have a lot of great information up for the community, uh, but everyone has different needs, and so we don't want our families to, you know, run around co-calling. Uh, we do have professional advocates statewide. Call our main line at 400-9992, and uh, we will, we're all standing by to talk with you. Thank you so much. That was CEO Nicole Coglietta, who started CareSIF to be a one-stop shop for families and other caregivers looking for long-term care options for their loved ones. Find links and contact information on hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Kahala Hotel and Resort on Oahu. Chef Mizukami's Thanksgiving Masterpiece Dinner to Go features free-range, non-GMO fresh turkey. Serve 6 to 8. Online at kahalaresort.com. On the next Science Friday, it's been almost a year since the first cases of COVID-19 began appearing in China. What have we learned? What kind of winter can we look forward to? Two disease experts join us. Plus, murder hornets have arrived. The first nest in the U.S. has been located and removed. Are there more to come? Details on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from Alexander and Baldwin, serving the islands for 150 years through job creation and civic support. A and B, building partnerships in Hawaii with a commitment to respect Hawaii's communities, people, cultures, and environment. You know, people have been more aware of where their food comes from because of this pandemic, and many have started gardening. Childcare has also been an issue, as some parents have stayed at home with their young ones. Tiana Kamen is the founder of Farm to Keiki and the author of a book of the same name. The book was meant to teach kids how to grow their own food and eat healthier. It may now be the perfect remedy for families during this pandemic. She spoke with the Conversations producer Jason Ubai back in early March, actually before the state shut down due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Farm to Keiki is actually a movement and a couple of programs I started in 2010. And it's all about putting wellness and environmental sustainability into the spotlight while our children are developing their inner nature and their food preferences So at the early childhood age, so zero to age eight. Growing up on Kauai, I love nature. I love everything about the world and my family traveled a lot growing up and we got to see so many wonders of the world. But at the same time, while I was young, I saw a lot of devastation of especially the environment. And so I always go to the quote, be the change you want to see in the world and also think globally, act locally. And so after seeing a lot of these things, I was an environmental studies major. I had my master's of science in nutrition. I came back to Kauai to act locally. And so I started wanting to change our food system by educating our teachers and our parents and our youngest children how to cook, grow, and eat locally. 
So I've been working a lot with the Department of Health and the Hawaii School Garden Hui, and I've been training preschool teachers around the state. Last year, we trained almost 500. Uh, maybe we could uh, talk about the book, what's in it. Uh, I saw that there are like plant profiles and um, lesson plans. Uh, maybe you could talk a bit uh, more. What, what kind of uh, plants are you showcasing in the book? So the book is meant to be a toolkit. And this toolkit is everything you need to know to get started with hands-on activities, recipes, gardening, cooking, with infusing education academics for kids. So there's three sections. The first section is meet the plants. And so this is all about introducing children and maybe ourselves to new plants and what are different activities you can do, what um, are different healthy recipes you can make, how will you grow this in your garden, or maybe if it's too big, how can you recognize it growing in different places, different farms on the island. Then the middle section of the book in our teacher's edition has curriculum. And so we take you through the farm to cakey topics. And this goes everywhere from learning about canoe plants and native plants to eating the rainbow and different parts of plants or how we use them in our lives. And then the last section is a compilation of simple recipes that you can cook with your children or for children. And as a holistic nutritionist and local food advocate, almost all of them are, I'd say, 95% locally sourced ingredients. How do you get your kids involved so they become more interested in eating vegetables and things that are healthy for them? So the Farm to Keiki solution is all about involving children every day in activities in the garden or learning math with, let's say you have greens. We're going growing a garden and so they can watch, let's say your lettuce growing every single day and measuring it and counting how many leaves come out and looking at what critters come to eat it. And so they get engaged and want to want to eat what they're growing because it's exciting. And it takes also many times for children to like a certain food or become familiar with it. So my solution with Farm to Keiki is that we integrate it into everything we do. All the activities at schools, into we eat three to six meals a day. So these are all opportunities for education. And we make it really delicious. <laughs> Send them, you know, practice um, gardening and cooking a little bit more at home because a lot of us are so used to going to get food out. Or, But cooking is an incredible activity to do with children, and they love it, and then they'll want to eat it more. What age do you suggest this book I'm cooking? Because uh, I, I, I know it's hard for a small toddler when you're working with fire or, like, anything sharp, but do you have guidelines for how old they should be before they do certain things? Sure. So I believe it starts in the womb. <laughs> but um, really, there's um, different practices for different ages. And you'll know based on your own child. But I have made sliced sushi with my three-year-old goddaughter before. You know, we really are um, providing them things they can do well at. So maybe the youngest children, if they're three or four, can be really good at stirring or adding ingredients. And as they get older, they'll have a little more hand dexterity to do the more complicated things. But I really believe in doing some fun and adventurous cooking recipes as long as you're watching because it excites them to want to do more and don't okay. be scared. You know, in as schools and childcare shifted to remote learning due to the COVID crisis, uh, we decided to reach back out and catch up with Cayman to see how Farm to Kiki's teacher training program has changed. We had trainings planned for all through spring in the summer uh, to give free farm to cakey hands-on trainings for preschool teachers around the whole state. And with coronavirus, we had to shift. And so we ended up um, creating an online training that's going to be free for anybody who wants to take it on our new website, which is also going to, they're both going to launch at the end of October. So the trainings are going to be three hours. Anyone who's an early childhood educator can get a certificate for professional development. And we're going to go through the Farm to Cakey book, give some basics about gardening and cooking nutrition with children. And it's really for any early childhood educators, elementary educators can take it too, or just people who are at home with their children and want to get them to eat healthier foods and start gardening and cooking. So this is all in um, sponsorship by the Department of Health. So we're just really 
appreciative. They were flexible with Corona, and we wanted to make sure that we could get our children outside, get our families outside, and cook healthy foods because your health is the number one thing you can do to prevent getting really sick from the coronavirus. So. I think during this pandemic, a lot of people have taken up gardening and growing their own food. And uh, this is a, you know, a lot of people are uh, staying at home a lot more and quarantining. So what do you think they can learn from this book? So the book is, uh, it's a toolkit that you can really pick and choose different activities, different plants. So let's say you want to grow tomatoes or taro. You go ahead and go to the taro or the kalo page and it will give you um, a planting uh, rhythm, you know, just ideas of how, a little bit, how do you plant it? How do you tend for it? And also when you grow it, what can you cook with it? Cooking tips and then different activities for the kids. So for people who are just getting started with growing, it gives you a little snapshot of what can you grow here. I, most of the plants I listed are really easy to grow. We wanted to focus on those ones. And then as you go through the lessons um, that are in the book, it gives you, you know, different ideas of how to care for the plants. Um, it's not necessarily a how to garden book, but that's going to come out in future trainings that we do. Folks can also tune into our Instagram, our social media, our Facebook, and I periodically give different kinds of tips of what's in season, how do you harvest this, how do you cook this. So that's a great place to go as well as the new website is going to have lots of information so it plays off the book. So maybe we have a page about Kahlo or Growing Taro, and we really will make it come to life um, with the new website launching at the end of October. All right, and all that's available online now. That was Tiana Kamen talking about her cookbook and training program to teach kids how to cook and prepare fruits and veggies. Early educators and parents can find out more about the training program and purchase the book at Farm to Keiki's website. You can find links at hawaiipublicradio.org. And that's it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we explore the latest report on the timeshare industry here in the islands. Got some feedback for us. We do like to hear from you. Call our talkback line and leave us your comments. That's 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. Our program is produced by Lillian Song, Harrison Patino, and Jason Ubai. The Backyard Quiz theme was written for us by John DeMello, and our theme music, courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday and pick up the conversation. Mm-hmm.